who remembers we were we're starting to work through Luke. Um, that's where Eddie took us right before Christmas. We went into Luke, and then we hit last week. We hit John the Baptist uh, in Luke, and eventually, if my clicker's working, there we go. Uh, we hit John the Baptist in Luke, and specifically, Eddie went into this point here. All flesh will see the salvation. Of God, and so I just want to pull really quick. We're going to jump into a different scripture. We're not going to be in Luke chapter three, but I want to make sure that we visit Luke chapter three so you can know why it is that I'm diverting. Otherwise, I would have totally preached Luke something from Luke chapter three, but God kind of took me a different direction. Um, so Luke three, verse starting in verse two, or kind of the part of verse two here. It says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We kind of know the story of that. Zechariah didn't really believe it when the angel told him he was going to have a son. Zechariah didn't have the ability to speak because he consistently questioned this angel that God had sent. Then all of a sudden, here comes John. John's kind of got his life devoted as a Nazarite. So he's eating locusts and honey in the wilderness. He's wearing like thick camel hair when he preaches. Okay, he's not necessarily the most like attractive guy to look at. So there's a lot of things that John's have in common, all right? So JJ, I do, I am a John. Anyway, so, uh, and then he went into all the region. This is John uh, around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as Eddie kind of even talked about last week, repentance is simply I'm walking one way and God is the opposite direction completely behind me. There's no like, oh, here I'm going towards God now because it's less of the way I've just been going. Okay, you can't say, like, if God's completely behind me, I can't do a 90 degree and say, well, I'm kind of walking to God. You can't, you can't even do it a little bit more and say, okay, I'm going to do 110 degree, and then I'm, I'm at least, uh, you know, God's kind of in that direction, right? No, no, it's, it's 180 degree. It's a complete turn. So it, this is the proclamation of baptism of repentance. So I know that as a Jew or as a Gentile, I'm going the opposite direction to God. And now I need to go and turn toward him. doesn't matter what sacrifices I've been doing, how many I've been doing. Ultimately, I need God's forgiveness because I'm a sinner. So that's what John is proclaiming. So there's a message that he's giving, and it's a harsh message, okay? Because there does need to be the understanding of you need repentance, you are a sinner. So the message is harsh that John is preaching. That's what I want you to understand first. There's no comfort to be found in this proclamation of you are a sinner and you need to turn back to God. There is no comfort that is in that message. There has to be an understanding that I need to repent of my sin. I am a sinner. I am going the opposite way of God. Okay, so let's not miss that as we move forward. But then this is, the con this is the comparison that's made with John. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, okay, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of of God. So there's a promise that's there in Isaiah. John also being the proclaimer is proclaiming this promise. This idea here, all flesh shall see the salvation of God, is literally the idea that all nations shall see the salvation of God. Everybody has an opportunity to experience this salvation of God. This is the idea that John is proclaiming. He's saying, and this is John's ministry, I'm here because my job is to proclaim to you that all flesh will have an opportunity to be saved. There is going to be salvation of God. This is the moment, if you were a Jew especially, this is the moment that you've been waiting for. As a nation, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Someone to break out and to claim these words of Isaiah, saying that Isaiah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled. This is the moment that you've been waiting for. Okay, You're excited as John is proclaiming this moment to you if you are a Jew. So you as a Jew know Isaiah chapter 40, and you know the history that led into Isaiah chapter 40. You know the history of your people as the Israelites and as Judah. You know the history of your nation. You know that the Assyrians took you over. Okay, You look back, you say, wow, that was a terrible time. 
You had the people of, if you were to look at the map now, Syria, the people that lived in Syria, okay, you had the Assyrians. You had the Assyrians had come in. They were already a strong power. You were already kind of worried about them. You were your own nation. You kind of had this fight. You became two nations. There's like this little struggle going on. Judah, or, uh, Judah doesn't really care too much about their neighbors that are also their family to the north. Okay, they're like, ah, you know, like we feel bad because they're family, but it's not our nation. So like we had this fight. It's okay. They can, they can be overrun. All right, but there's this issue that's going on. You've got wicked kings and you've got righteous kings in your history that you know have come and they've gone. All right, so this is gone, but because the nation overall has been unrighteous, okay, because they've turned away from the way of God, because they're worshiping other gods, because they're doing all the things that God had told them not to do, okay, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Joshua, okay, the people of Israel as a whole had claimed, we will not turn away from God. And it was great because actually just earlier this week, you get into the book of Judges, let alone the fact that they had kind of broken some promises to God just in Joshua and in, you know, Deuteronomy alone. But uh, you get into the book of Judges and all of a sudden everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So God has to send a judge and then the judge lifts them back up. So Israel's full of all these issues that they're having. They're just not following after God. They constantly turn and they just do whatever seems right in their own eyes or whatever seems right in their own heart. Okay, they follow their heart. You know, sounds pretty familiar. We're all called to do that by some sort of media in some way, shape, or form. Follow your heart. Do what seems right to you and everything will work out in the end. But that's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to follow him if we're to be his people. And Isaiah speaks into this moment where the Assyrians are coming in. And he's like, hey, you guys are going to be overtaken. Okay, and then not only that, but then after the Assyrians, now, hey, you know how you've also heard about the Babylonians and the Babylonian Empire. I mean, we think we're good as the United States or we thought the Romans were good being there. What, 500 something years that they might have been a civilization. The Babylonians have been around for a long time. We're talking like 1200 years. Okay, Um, Babylonians were around for a long time. They had an established empire. They were slowly building. They'd rise in little moments where they'd be strong, but they never really became this massive world power. But Isaiah says, hey, the Assyrians, they're getting wiped out. The Babylonians are going to come in and overtake everything that they've done. Um, And actually, Isaiah talking with one of the semi-righteous kings, it says, hey, you've shown these Babylonians, okay, everything that you have in your city, and the Babylonians are going to take it all, but not from you. They'll take it from your kids. But either way, you just have these moments where Isaiah is proclaiming, this is all going to happen. Everything that you as a country know is being stripped from you, and it's because of everything you've done rejecting the God that is your God, God, only God, right? And so he's like, there is this moment that's coming. It is sure, and it's going to be fulfilled. And so Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 deals with a lot of that. If you want to see how that all plays out, you really need to read like actually 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, because it all ties together. And then Isaiah is actually a lot of his preaching and his prophecies, and that's how that ties together. But then all of a sudden you hit Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 40 speaks to this specifically, to find comfort in God's word. So in the middle of all this bad, now he preached moments of comfort. He actually said the Assyrians would get wiped out. And just like you and I have probably never met one, you don't meet an Assyrian today, okay? The Assyrians were wiped out, all right? But there's this comfort that's going to be found in God's word, all right? And so this is how Isaiah chapter 40 actually starts off. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now in the Hebrew, this word comfort is actually like this imperative, like you will find comfort, you will find comfort. Um, If you read actually the Haitian Creole Bible, the Haitian Creole, their word for this comfort is not just comfort. There's not an actual word there that just is like, oh, hey, this means comfort. It actually is to say to wipe away the water, or in other words, to wipe away the tears. So we have tears, right, when something bad happens to us. So something bad is happening, has happened. You're in the middle of sobbing and crying And then God breaks in and says, I'm going to wipe away your tears. I'm going to wipe away your tears, my people, because I'm here now. There's the comfort. The comfort is not things are going to get better. They are not going to, you're not going to become rich. You're not going to have the same temple you once did, which we know they never have. 
You're not going to fully be completely in charge of your land. Your land isn't going to produce the same crops that it used to where you're overflowing with milk and honey and massive grapes. You're never going to have that again. Okay, that's not the comfort God's speaking of when he says, comfort, comfort my people. There's something different. It's God breaking in saying, I'm wiping away your tears if you're my person. And uh, so reading through, so I read Isaiah 40, looked at it earlier this week, did a lot with it, and just kind of like highlighted things. I underlined things. I've got notes here in front of me I'll probably be grabbing as we go along. But then I read commentaries, and uh, one of the commentaries I read was actually Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon speaks on this. Now, Spurgeon's not normally a preacher that you read and you think, oh, he's going to make me feel so comfortable while I sit in service today. He's not the guy that breaks in that you think, oh, he's going to give me a warm, fuzzy blanket. And, you know, he's going to be the guy that breaks in that preaches you as a sinner need to repent. There's a lot that goes into that typically with Spurgeon. But Spurgeon's also the guy that's got massive amounts of people praying while his service is going on. And uh, so he preaches a sermon dealing with this, just Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. And the only thing that mattered for Charles Spurgeon when preaching this was this one main message, that if you are a believer in Christ, you should have hope, and your only message on a consistent basis, by the way that you look, your countenance, should be one of comfort. You shouldn't ever have somebody look at you and doubt that you are comfortable in God, in the Word of God, in what God has for you, in your future hope in God. No matter what's going on, Spurgeon's point in looking at just Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, was that if we are a people of God, we should have comfort. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. But I just want you to think about that word comfort for a moment. And I want you to think about, you know, do I find comfort in the word of God? And that's a really hard thing to grasp. It's a really hard thing to even preach because let's be honest, I've not always found comfort in the Word of God. There have been plenty of moments in my life where I'm walking along and I'm kind of yelling at God and I'm getting frustrated with God and I'm getting frustrated in my circumstances and I'm just like, what are you doing, God, with what's going on right now? This isn't very fun, God. I'm not enjoying myself, God. You know, there's those moments. Maybe you've had those moments too. Uh, maybe you're living in one of those moments right now and it seems kind of awkward to maybe even be saying to you, hey, find comfort in the Word of God. Um, but it's something that it's almost like one of those faith moments where I'm going to say, just read the word and you'll find comfort. If you don't believe me, that's fine. If you don't apply it, that's fine. Sorry. I told you literally what God told me in these verses today. Read the word and you'll find comfort. So here's how that might play out, right? So right now I'm reading through. I said that I'm kind of reading through the Bible, just how God gives me the time to be able to do it. It's not the easiest thing in the world. If you're like me, you might have time just at the end of the day to finally sit down and say, okay, I'm going to read as much of the Bible as God will let me at this moment so I can just get as much in one portion as possible. So I'll try that from time to time. And about half a chapter in for that evening, I'll wake up the next morning, right? Um, that's just, it happens. I, I just can't make it through half a chapter. I don't even remember what I just read. My eyes, my eyelids are literally falling. The words all of a sudden cross and they flip upside down. And then I try to stay awake and it just doesn't work. Other times I get to make it through a couple chapters and I'm good and I'm on my way. Um, but I find comfort in God's word. And the place that I found some comfort just last night was in the book of Ruth. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you might know what I'm talking about. You've got this woman. She's a Moabite. Okay, her, She's living in a land and was never supposed to marry the guy that she married, because God said you're not supposed to marry those people. But God in his grace and his mercy and what he allowed to have happen took Naomi and her husband and her two sons, and in the middle of a famine in Israel, okay, what's going on, everything, everything that God had promised, he's starting to bring about these famines that if the people of Israel had been following God's word, they would have never experienced these famines. But God brings this famine, this moment where there are tears as they leave their land, and Naomi and her husband and her two sons find themselves in the land of Moab. And as Israelites, they were not supposed to marry Moabite women. That was, a, that was not supposed to happen. But they're breaking rules already all over Israel, and they break another rule here. And you have two Moabite women that get married to these two boys. Those two boys die. Naomi's husband dies. And now you've got Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws and Naomi looks at him and says, you've not had any kids. I don't have any more kids. 
I don't have a husband, and even if I got married right now and you waited long enough for those boys to be old enough to marry, I don't know that that's even right for me to do to you. So you know what? Everybody's clear to their vows. I'm getting out of here. You guys go home and you feel free to marry whoever God brings your way next, right? You go worship your gods. I'll go back and I'll worship my God. She gives them a free pass. And at first, you know, you've got a little bit of a struggle here. The girls are like, oh, no, we'll stay with you. But then Ruth is like, no, your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And I'm going with you, Naomi. You aren't getting rid of me. See a moment where you see actually a heart change. And we don't know how that story is fully going to play out. It's four chapters. I've already read it, but I'm not going to ruin it for you if you've never read it. But you want to see God work and do something amazing. Ruth, one, two, three, four. You can hit that today. I'm just telling you, you'll find comfort in God's word. You'll see how God is able to redeem anybody, even if he was never, quote, supposed to in the first place. It's amazing stuff. He can redeem you. So let's jump in, though. We're going to get Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. You have to be his people. If you're not his people, literally everything I say from this point forward does not apply to you. And if you want to be his people... Just cry out to Jesus right now in your own heart and say, Jesus, I want to be yours right now. Because whatever promise I'm about to tell you from his word will not apply to you if you are not his person. You have to be a person of God for any of this to even make sense to you or for any of this to apply to you. And if you feel like the Lord's tugging on your heart right now because you've seen that there's a word comfort, he will wipe away those tears that you're feeling. Do it now. Don't hesitate. And I'll talk to you about it later because you can apply what you're about to read in the rest of the word based off of whether or not you're his person. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. There's only one, but we'll get into that here in just a moment. So here's what he says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. We know that the only thing that can pardon sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is future. There is no pardoning of sin with the sacrifice. So something's coming up that's going to pardon sin. And this is Isaiah talking, so immediately we're going to a future proclamation of the pardoning of sin. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Now that seems a little unfair of God to punish someone twice over for something. you think that one punishment would be punishment enough. So what could twice over mean? Um, let me give you this idea. I saw it. It's actually really great. I won't claim it because it was a commentary that said it, but it made so much sense. It was great. Here's your piece of paper, right? Twice over means corner to corner. I take this paper and it's going to be a perfect match and a perfect fold. And there's my twice over. So here's my sin and something's coming twice over that's going to completely pay for it. You, now, I'm not going to be perfect at folding, but I'm pretty good, all right? And if you look at this from afar, you will see that every single corner matches, every single side lines up, which means that this is completely covered. That sin that I had on one side is completely covered by that pardoning. That's a twice-over punishment from sin. Either I have to pay for my own sin, which is a once-over punishment, or somebody else is going to come along that's going to pay for my sin completely for me, and that's a twice-over folded punishment. So either you can have a once-over punishment, which is fine. Some people choose that route. I suggest that you don't. Or you could have a twice-over punishment, which would be our, I believe that that's what's fulfilled through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. Either you're going to have a twice-over punishment or you're going to have a once-over punishment. It's your choice whether or not you want to be comforted. And the comfort comes from the twice-over punishment for sin. Listen, it's the voice Here's John, right? This is where John kind of claims this as his verse. This is his life verse. This is what we know uh, his life to be. Listen, it's the voice of one shouting, someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys, level the mountains and the hills, straighten the curves, smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. You see there that there's a lot of language that just went into making a very easy path. It's not a hard path. A lot of people are like, well, I've got to go take care of this first, or I've got to fix this portion of my life first. You know, that's filling in a valley on your own. That's a lot of work. If you've ever dug a hole, any sort of hole. I dig holes at the beach all the time for my kids or other people's kids. If you've been at the beach with me, you know what I'm talking about. You're welcome. All right. 
Um, if you've ever wanted to join me in doing that, it's quite fun. You get to digging and digging and digging, and it's amazing how while digging the hole I want to dig for somebody else's kid, they'll come over and they'll tell me how they want that hole to look. You know that? Can you make it a little bigger over here? Can you make it deeper? I'm like, yeah, sure. Just one second here. Let me fill it. Let me get this hole even bigger for you. Yeah, let me just really dig down in there and pull up with my back, right? Like, that feels great. Let me just get as much sand as I can. And if you ask to help, it's amazing, right? You know, they just scoop, scoop, and then all of a sudden, where are they? They're in the water, um, and there goes my hole. Why did I dig it? I don't know. I just felt like digging a hole. But if you are somebody that really enjoys filling in your own valleys and leveling your own mountains and clearing your own path, then I think that God would say that you're not one of his people. You might not quite get the fact that that's God's job. He's leveling out everything. He's preparing everything perfectly. And he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing here because here comes the Lord. And John speaks out, and that's his message. He says the God is coming. The time is right. And so when we see in Luke 3, John proclaiming his message, he says the Messiah is on his way. This is coming true right now through Jesus. And we see that later on Jesus does show up in John's ministry. But for right now, John, this is John's proclamation. So here's this idea. A voice said, shout. And this prophet says, what should I shout? It's kind of the mentality there of where the Greek said. It's like, whoa, wait. Okay, you said shout, and I think the prophet was actually told what to shout, and then he comes back really quick and he says, whoa, 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 what am I supposed to shout? Tell me that one more time, all right? What am I supposed to shout? Shout this, people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers, the flower fades beneath the breath of the Lord, and so it is with people. And we see this last bit, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. People fade, is what Isaiah is told to shout, which means that all your good deeds, Jerusalem, and we'll get into that even maybe some more as this verse goes through, but all your good deeds, Jerusalem, or people, or people that are in exile in Assyria, or people that are in exile that whenever they're in Babylon, or whatever it is, all your good deeds, you're just like grass, you're going to fade. No matter what you apply to, no matter what you do, no matter how many good works you might muster up, before the Lord. That is all fading. And at the same time, the Assyrians are like grass. The Babylonians are like grass. You're going to get to Babylon. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be beautiful. It's grass. You're going to get to Assyria, and it's not going to be the prettiest of circumstances when we get taken to Assyria, by the way. Uh, we know that there are like fish hooks that get clipped together in your mouth. You're going to be led along in a chain gang, and then there you guys are. You're being taken in as prisoners into Assyria. It's not going to be pretty, but it might be pretty when you get there. city might be magnificent. The people might be magnificent. The army is going to be magnificent, and they're just like grass. There's actually a story that we'll read that you can read about whenever Isaiah is talking and he's talking to, um, I believe it. Well, it's one of the the, the kings. Now I'm going to get caught because I'm not going to remember which king it was. You're going to have to find in the Bible yourself. But for right now, hear me on this: that he's talking to a king. The Assyrian army is literally standing at the doorsteps, ready to bust into Jerusalem, just take the city over. And Isaiah comes in and he says, "Hey, tomorrow they're not going to be here anymore." And then some like general, whatever, gate guard, whatever he is, he opens his big old mouth, um, and he's like, yeah, right. And Isaiah says, all right, you're going to see it, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. That would be scary if a prophet told me that. I might change my mind, but he didn't, apparently, because what happens is the morning wakes up, and you've got a couple lepers, guys that are outcasts, standing out. They're like, hey, we're starving. Uh, we might as well go and see if this army, if they don't kill us, maybe they'll give us something to eat because they feel bad for us. And they get out there, and the Assyrian army is gone, completely wiped out, 185,000 just gone. And the people are so starved and so hungry and so ready because they're literally eating like the brains of donkeys or the earlobe of a donkey. I mean, it's nasty, right? I would not go that far, but I've never been that starved. That's where they're at. And this gatekeeper gets trampled as the people run out to go and collect from the army that left everything behind. So this is where God, the people are like grass. They wither, they change. And God is above and controls it all. His word stands forever. So if we want to find comfort in the word of God, hopefully just a few of the stories I've shown or told you so far, whether they've been perfect or not, but they're there, 
Hopefully that's something that might bring you a little bit of comfort. If he can do that in their situation, he can do that in the situation of his people still today, and he does. Zion, here we go. There's O Zion, messenger of good news. Shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. And see, he brings his reward with him as he comes. And you know what happens? A lot of the Jews saw that part of Isaiah. And they thought, man, we're going to have this king. He's going to take over everything. And we're going to become a great nation again. And it's amazing that John speaks to this and people got excited about Jesus and literally, this is, the, this is the rule of scripture, don't stop reading because the very next thing, does this sound like a king that's just going to destroy everything? He will feed his flock like a shepherd, he'll carry his lambs in his arms, those nasty, disgusting, sweaty, fleece-covered, idiotic things, right? He'll cover those lambs, he'll carry them like a loving little mom, he'll carry them in his arms, that's not a triumphant king, holding them close to his heart, and he'll gently lead the mother sheep with their young. He's going to be loving. He's going to be caring. He's going to care for his people just like a shepherd. Jesus says that he's the great shepherd, the good shepherd, right? We see that. There was a John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being that shepherd. He claims that verse, being a shepherd. He talks about it as in Psalm 23, where we learn about the Lord being our shepherd. And here we go again. Here's that this person that's coming will feed his flock like a shepherd. <clears throat> so I wanna, we're going to transition just a second. We're about to see some truths about God. Who God is, the God that speaks into this word, the God that created the heavens and the earth, the God that sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf, the God that follows through with punishing sin. And here's the reality that we're going to see from Isaiah chapter 40. You can't find comfort in God's word if you have a little God. A lot of us have little gods, and we find comfort in them. And then, if that doesn't work out, we might look to God's word. Don't do that. You can't find comfort in God's word if you have a little God. The God of God's word should be the one and only God that's controlling your life. Here's Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Can you imagine that? I mean, that's not even, that's just leading over to the Bahamas right now. Like, we've got the full Atlantic. You can't see on the other side of it. You can't even see any of the Bahamas. Well, I guess you'd have to look kind of down south further. But we can't see West End from here. All right, you keep going. You can't see the rest of the islands. You can't look out and you can't see the mountain. You can't see Mount Kilimanjaro from here, right? That's over in Africa. You'd think that that high of a peak that we'd be able to see it. You can't see that. That's a big ocean that we're looking out over. You don't see anything over there. Then all of a sudden, not to mention, you've got the Gulf of Mexico, not even an ocean. You've got the Pacific. That's massive. Can't find anything if you get lost out there unless you have some good navigational charts. And then at the same time, you've got the Arctic Ocean with all of its hazards, okay? You've got the Indian Ocean. That's its own beast in and of itself. You've got all the oceans that are all around, and God just simply holds them in his hand. Who has measured of the heavens with his fingers? And the idea of there with measure of the fingers is actually the thumb and then these two fingers here on the end, your middle and your index finger. There's your, your span of how God measures the heavens. All right. I was uh, trying to hang like these bamboo kind of curtain things in Eddie and Linda's house, Pastor Eddie's house the other day. And yes, all of you construction people might not agree, but I did measure off by using the tip of a finger to know how high I wanted each nail to be um, above the windowsill. Did not use a ruler or anything, right? But that's how God measures, so he uses his fingers. Um, all right, so who's measured the heavens with his fingers? Imagine that. Just hold that out and look at that in your, in your lap or in front of you. I mean, you don't do that. That's not how you measure things. Not that vast anyways. I mean, good luck. Measures the heavens with his fingers. Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and the hills on a scale? All right. There are some people that have come up with numbers, right? It's their best guesstimate, right? They say, oh, well, this much dirt weighs this much, and we figure this much dirt in the mountain, so the mountain must weigh this much. All right, that's great. It doesn't really matter, right? But at the same time, God's able to do it. That's pretty impressive in and of itself. That's a big God, by the way. It's not some little rinky-dink God that needs my help. 
All right, let's go back one more, two more. All right, who's able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or to teach him? There's the question. Now, just a moment. Have you ever done it? Yeah, I have. I'll let you answer in your own heart. I'll say it out loud. I've told God what he should do on a given occasion because I think that my way is just the way that he needs to do it because I've planned it all out. I know all the potential issues that could come along with it, and I can plan pretty well about what God needs to do. So I've told him what he should do on occasion, only to find out it's not the best option. But yeah, I've tried to tell him exactly what to do, and uh, we just know that it doesn't work out. That makes God a little smaller when I start giving him advice. Makes me a little bit bigger than him, and God doesn't like that. Um, but at the same time, he's merciful enough to let me speak. I think he loves me quite a bit. Um, he's not taking me out for giving him advice, but he also isn't going to take my advice. Uh, he's going to teach me one way or another to take what it is he wants me to do. Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? No. All right, there's a reason why that question is there. Does he need instruction about what is good? No. That's another question there. We've tried to tell God what we think is the better solution in a given situation. Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? And I just want to really quickly hit on just one thing, not to completely... uh, you know, belittle anyone, except I am stating that the God of the Bible is a big God. He doesn't need anyone's instruction, but no one instructed him. And just to be very candid, Mormonism, that Mormon religion teaches at the end of the day that somebody became a God and was instructed by somebody else, and that is the God of the universe now. That's how that Mormon religion breaks down. You will eventually become a God in the Mormon religion. You were instructed on earth And you will have your own future ability to instruct others as a heavenly father. That is false. And this verse right here can be used in of itself enough to say, no, God does not get instructed. And he never was. He wasn't taught. Actually, the book of Genesis, you have Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Okay, there's the beginning of time, everything. God created the heavens of the earth. In the beginning, there's time. So God is outside of time. He doesn't need time. He is time, okay? He's the one that instructed it. He spoke it. It began. God does not need to be created and is not matter. No matter what we think, he is not matter. He doesn't have that beard like we think he does. He can't be constructed by matter to become an image of anything that we can muster up on our own. God was outside of matter because he created matter. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth he is outside of all of that he is in control of all of that he determines where each star goes he determines where each angel falls and we do know that the angels that rebelled against him as lucifer or satan we might call him were cast down because they thought that they would have the right to instruct god god is outside of and controls everything no one needs to or has ever taught him. And that's kind of comforting if you think about it, because if you can find comfort in God's word, then you know that there literally is not one person that has told God to tell you something. You know those people that are just getting under your skin, you're like, I'm not going to listen to them. And then then sometimes those are the people that, you know, are also, you're praying for them. God, would you tell them this God does not need you to tell them anything. He's going to handle it quite fine on his own, and we should rest in that. That's comfort, and that just might be the tear that needs to get wiped away from your eye this morning. So the best thing that could ever happen to me is for God's will to be done in my life. Let's look at this. No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. You know, back uh, whenever you had the Israelites especially, and you maybe have experienced a day in one shape, form, or another, but this is what this looked like back then. Dust on a scale meant that I had two scales whenever I would weigh things back in the time of the Israelites. I'd have one scale that was my, uh, my, my good scale, like, uh, you know, I'd have grain on it or whatever, and it would be weighed out in a way that would make it to where I could say, okay, this payment equals what you're getting, right? So you're going to give me something, and there's a weight to it. There's got to be a specific weight, and the weight that you're receiving is also going to be equal in weight to that. That's how we're going to have the exchange. And so what you have is you'd have some guys that figured out the system. It's a pretty easy system to crack, and they just changed the metal in that one scale just a little bit so that they would win in the end, right? That scale over there would be a little heavier one way or the other. And so what you'd have is at the end of the day, The scales would look balanced, 
but in reality, one scale weighs just a little bit more than the other. And so while it looks balanced, it's not balanced, and people would get cheated out, and God condemned it. So what you'd have is to make, from a marketing perspective, I like this, by the way, to make it look like I'm being extremely honest to you, I'd get on up to my scale, and I'd go, I'd blow that dust off. Yeah, you don't have to pay for the dust. Don't you feel so good? You're getting a bargain. I'm going to make sure everything that's on that scale is exactly what it's supposed to be. And it's going to be payment for payment exact. So in this, Isaiah kind of plays with some of that language. And he's like, you know how guys blow the dust off the scale. There's nothing more. These people, these people, these lands, these nations, these Assyrians, these Babylonians, by the way, you Jews, every nation is nothing more than the dust on those scales. So when God goes up and he's looking at a perfect measurement, you don't deserve to be on that scale. You're nothing. And that's kind of harsh, but that's also comforting. Because if your problem is, oh man, I just don't know how this is going to work out. My boss, he's such an evil person. I'm not going to be able to handle this. That customer, oh my gosh, they're saying this about my business. And I did not do that. That's a lie. That's false. God says at the end of the day, no matter who we're up against, if we're a child of his and we're living righteously, we should be reflecting on our own life. Yeah, we are nothing but dust. But everything that comes against us through anybody else, including any nation, any government, any sort of ruling authority, they are nothing but dust as well. So God's in control of it, and he just blows it off. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. And you've seen Eddie like go like this, and he'll get sand on his feet, and he'll say there's like 100 grains of sand. I think I only have 50 because my feet aren't as dirty. Um, but anyway, so let's see if I can get a single grain. That's like, and if anyone else wants to get their shoe, I mean, it's gross, right? But, you know, it's great illustration. You can see a grain of sand because we've been walking around near the beach. But you can just see that little grain of sand, and, I mean, it shines and it sparkles. And I'm sure if I used a magnifying glass, it would be really pretty. Uh, but just looking at it, you don't think about that when you're walking on the sand, right? You don't think, oh, wow, look at each individual grain. They're so beautiful. You know, you don't do that because that would take way too much time. But yet God being able to hold us as a single grain of sand, the entire earth, looking at it, he takes time to study, to know each hair that's on my head and on your head. He knows everything that's going on in that little grain of sand. He cares about it immensely, and he's intimately involved in it. That's pretty big for us to be just a little grain of sand. You didn't care that much about that grain of sand. I told you to just pick off your shoe. You probably didn't even do it because it was gross. When God looks at our sin, he thinks it's gross, yet he still takes time to care about each individual detail. All the wood in Lebanon's forest. Now, this is the Lebanon's forest back then, so let's not use the Lebanon's forest today. We're talking like just immense beauty. Okay, all the wood in Lebanon's forest and all the Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him, and in his eyes they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. No matter what I have to bring, no matter what a nation has to bring to God, it's emptiness. If they're bringing it to try to convince him to do something, to try to, like, I'm going to bring this to God. If I bring this to God, he'll accept me. No, there's only one way God accepts us, and that's through what he did, through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. So check this out. In all of that, we are nothing, yet he gave his only son to redeem the world. John 3.16, you've heard it. Don't forget it. For God so loved the world, that little grain of dust, that little grain of sand, the nations that he can blow off of the scale. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. So just because we're small, just because we're minute, just because when God looks at us, we can see we're all over the Bible. God compares us to dust or to grains of sand or to, you know, we're going to pass away. We're like chaff in the wind. Whatever it is that God compares us to, he's still in the middle of that. The Bible says he gave his one and only begotten son for us. And we know that Isaiah chapter 40 breaks out in that proclamation of prepare the way for the Lord. 
This is what the voice is calling out, but he's reminding us of our stance. Verse 18, to whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? That's a pretty idol, isn't it? Think of some diamonds, some rubies, whatever it is. Men fight over those idols, by the way, today, don't they? People will kill each other over being able to find those idols that were once worshipped in that way. People will literally risk everything to go out and find just a small silver dollar or small gold coin off of the treasure coast here, won't they? They'll spend hours upon hours with a metal detector just hoping they find that one little image or that one little piece of gold. And here we have this idol that's overlaid with it. And you'd think that that would be a god worth worshipping. But not everybody has the ability to worship a pretty god like that, so we make Here's another one. Or if people are too poor, which I resemble that remark, right? If people are too poor for that, they might at least choose some wood that won't decay, because that's important. You'd hate for your idol to all of a sudden rot away on you. So they choose some wood that won't decay, and a skilled craftsman, which I've got to go out and find because I'm not one myself, a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Now, the god of Dagon fell down in the Bible. You have to go and watch and read about that. You'd have to read the Bible to find out where I'm talking about because can't remember the reference. But I do know there was a god that a lot of people worshipped. His name was Dagon. He was a super tall statue. And all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant of God is brought into the tower or into this temple of Dagon, and the statue stands over it. And the people of that city and the people of that town and that nation rejoiced because the God of Israel had been conquered. They wake up the next morning, and the god of Dagon has fallen over. So they think, oh, we better pick up Dagon. That's not a really good look for him. He's bowing down before the ark of the god of the Israelites. Let's pick him back up. Whoop, set him back erect. And then they go to bed that night, and they come in the next morning. And now not only has Dagon fallen over, but his head smashed off and is all in pieces. Can't really just fix that god anymore. You know what we're going to do? We better get rid of this god of the Israelites because now we've also got some pests and some insolence and some nasty things that are happening in our city. Send that god back to the Israelites. We don't want him here anymore because he's judging us. The god that we worship won't fall down. He'll make every other god fall, but he's not fallen down. Maybe you have a god in your life that God needs to knock down. Just let him. And whenever you see that it's fallen down, don't pick it up again. Because if you've got to pick it up, that means that you're actually the God of that God, right? You control that God. If you've got to carve him, you're in charge of that God. You know, there's a part of the Nicene Creed which just came to mind to me. So the Nicene Creed says that uh, God, Jesus, was begotten, not made. Now, there's a lot that goes into that statement, I know, and if there's a Bible scholar beyond Bible scholars here, I get it. We could have a discussion all day about that, but there's a part of a creed where the church decided to specifically say that Jesus was begotten, not made, and I wonder if begotten, not made, if Jesus was begotten, I mean, he wasn't created because a man slept with a woman, he was born of a virgin, so Jesus, God took the time, just thinking about it, it's interesting, Jesus, God took the time to make sure that the Son of God was not created in the same way that we would normally be created. Because if he had to be created by a skilled craftsman, now that'd make Joseph feel pretty good. But anyways, if he had to be created, then all of a sudden, is he really God? Born of a virgin. God's in control of it all. So here we go. Have you heard... Or haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began. Are you so ignorant? Kind of perk up our ears. Let's listen up. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent for them. By the way, that seems like grasshoppers. That's an interesting statement. One commentator said that we weren't compared to ants in this verse. Because ants have a purpose, they march in a line, they know what they're doing, they all work tightly together. Um, we're compared to grasshoppers that kind of flip-flop all over, we eat what's ever in sight, we don't really care about one another, and uh, pretty much everything wants to eat us. So there we go, we're compared to grasshoppers. Take it for what it is, but we're not compared to an ant in this verse. I just think that's interesting too. But at the same time, you had in Deuteronomy, uh, where you have this moment with the Exodus, where you have people walking out of Egypt, they get to the promised land, 12 spies go into that promised land, two come out ready to fight, 10 of them come out and they convince the rest of 2 million people of the nation of Israel that they are like grasshoppers in the sight of the people 
in the promised land. We can't go in. We can't beat them. They're massive. And they look at us and they think we're grasshoppers. So another reason why I think Isaiah might have stuck with that word grasshopper, knowing that about Israel's history, when God looks at everybody on earth, we're just simply grasshoppers to him. It's a good comparison. He's in control. And uh, if you're following him, you don't have anything to be afraid of. He judges the great people of the world and he brings them all to nothing. Great people of the world. That's an interesting word. That's an important word. That means all kings. That means all judges. Okay, he judges the judges. Okay, um, and maybe you know a judge or maybe you've been judged by a judge and you didn't think that the judgment or the judge was fair. Um, and that's understandable. That happens, right? There's a judgment that's made. But that judge is usually influenced, right? They're influenced by witnesses. They're influenced by the rest of the people that are working in their firm. They're maybe influenced by the way they feel that morning when they wake up. They didn't have enough coffee or they just woke up really upset. So they decide, you know, we're going to be tougher today than we were the other day. If you're a judge and that's not how you judged, I'm sorry, but let's just be honest here. Sometimes we wake up, though, and we judge other people, don't we? Whether we're in a courtroom or not. And that judgment that we give isn't always fair. And sometimes we're judged and it's not the right judgment that was cast on us. But here we are, he judges the great people. He's the only one that has the right to judge. And so if God's word feels like a judgment to you when you're reading it, it's a perfect judgment. Don't neglect it. Don't turn a blind eye to it. Don't turn away and say, oh, that doesn't apply to my circumstance here today or how I feel. God's judgment is the perfect judgment. They hardly get started, barely take root when he blows on them and they wither and the wind carries them off like chaff. So we see that the rulers of the world, there are some people that have been rulers of the world, some people that have been in charge of great things and they wish, oh man, if only I had had more time. Now I'm only 31, but I wish that I was 21 because I would have done a lot of things different in the last 10 years. Would any of you have done a lot of things different just in the last 10 years? Would you have made a few different choices, right? Would you have maybe judged people a little less? Would you have rather not said that one thing to so-and-so? All right, you just think through it, right? We can spend a lot of time mulling over that, but I don't think that that's the point because you've got today and you've got the potential of if God gives you tomorrow and you don't know that you're even going to get that. And right here, you could hardly get started with the rest of whatever I've got to say today, we could hardly get started and Christ could end it just like that and come. So don't wait. A lot of things can happen. Don't wait to worship God. Don't wait to share the gospel with somebody. Don't wait to ask for forgiveness. Don't wait to come before God and humble yourself. Because if you're waiting for a perfect moment, it's not going to happen and life is just going to disappear. To whom will you compare me? So here's God kind of giving you an opportunity. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. If you just thought of something, then really put that to the test today. I don't know how you're going to do it, but if you just thought of something that you think is equal, put that to the test today. And I guarantee you that God will show you that you're wrong if you thought he were, anything was equal with him. Put it to the test today. However you need to do it, put it to the test. Look up in the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. And there are some like scientists, right, that have said that it's 10 to the 25th power. That's how many stars there are. Um, but God knows every one of their names, and I don't know all your names. But the names of the stars even are, are, aren't easy, right? Like it's not like Kevin, right? Like imagine that, right? Like then maybe I could see where you'd know all the stars. But you've got all these crazy star names, and scientists have to constantly make up new ones. And sometimes it's like, you know, Artemis II, right? Oh, that's a space shuttle, but that just shows you I don't know. It's like we're going to add a two to it because we can't think of enough names. God has a name for every one of the stars, and he knows them all. And because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Not a single star that God wants there is missing. Every single star is exactly where it needs to be. And when you look up at the sky, yeah, sure, the earth rotates, but don't we have the ability to track stars and know where they're going to end up whenever night hits again? We can actually track it out in days in advance, and we can look back in the past, and we can say, well, this is where that star was in the past. There's actually a way that you can buy a star chart for the day that you were born, and you can know what the night sky looked like on the day that you were born. Every single one is in its place. And it has been, and it will always be, according to where God wants it. 
So, oh, Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your trouble? So if he cares about all those stars, just like Jesus, where he said if he cares about the sparrow uh, and he cares about the flower of the field, how can you dare say that God doesn't care about you? Oh, Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say that God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. You guys are going to about to start here. It's, this is a familiar portion of Isaiah chapter 40. You might have it crocheted somewhere in your house or on a computer screen for those of you that are millennials. All right. He never grows weak or weary, and no one can measure the depths of his understanding. So Paul said this, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You can find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. So we're going to be weak. That's reality. Whenever you realize you're weak, that's a reality. Paul knew he was weak in that New Testament where he wrote all these different passages to the churches and where he traveled, he was in prison. We think Paul was a pretty strong dude being able to go around as an apostle proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, being brought near death, I think three times and just getting back up and walking back into the city. Okay, we think Paul might not be the weakest, but Paul considered, hey, in my weakness, that shows his strength. So if anyone ever approaches, and I've got to remind myself of this, right? I love to serve. I love to do things to help other people. But a lot of times when I do things to help other people, I catch myself doing things and not letting God tell me to do them. I get so caught up in doing it that I just think, oh, well, I need to do it or it's not going to get done. If you, if you resound, if that statement hits you like it does me, I, I, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. If that's you, then this is where this is important. If you're not asking God, do I need to do this? Or if you're not letting God take care of it, now, yeah, he can use your hands, but he also might be wanting to use somebody else, and that's what I have to remind myself of. His strength is made perfect. When we realize we have a weakness, make it known. That's what I love about Charlie talking about his back. He's been talking about last couple weeks. Charlie, how's that back doing, by the way? Getting better every day? Charlie's led tours at MFI because that is what he was able to do. He actually, the other day when you pushed up your own tailgate, I was like, Charlie, don't, I'll do it for you. I was thinking in my head, but you'd already pushed it up. So the fact that you, were, you probably couldn't do that a couple in September especially, right? Push your own tailgate up. How is that for weakness, guys? Not being able to push up your own tailgate, right? Like, there you go. That's humbling from the Lord. But Charlie said, he's like, once I know, and he's going to continue to work on it, and it could be something like Paul. It's consistent and it comes up or it could go away, but Charlie knows he's got to just let God take over and show him strength. And sometimes that strength is literally physical strength being taken away. If you're in a moment right now where your physical strength has been taken away, let God be the strength for you. Don't do what you used to do. That's fine. God's not wanting you necessarily to. Maybe he's wanting you to ask for help because there's somebody else he's trying to bring into your life, not only to give them an opportunity, but to give you an opportunity to realize that, yeah, you have a weakness and it's there. And now he gets to show you his strength supernaturally by saying, now there's somebody that's going to be helping you to pull this off. Just saying, it's not an easy thing to do, but pride, if you've got pride, you can't let God be strong. And guess what? That all of a sudden makes pride your God. It's easy to find a lot of little gods in our life, but if we have to create that God, including our own strength, a lot of guys work out. I go to the gym. I hear there's some guys in the gym that scream at the top of their lungs. There's some ladies in the gym that scream at the top of their lungs. That one's scary. All right, the guys, I understand, but when there's a lady in there and she's like, yeah, like she just goes on out, I'm like, I'm not messing with her. Like, forget that. I'm out. I might just leave. And there's some days where I might actually leave because I just can't handle the screaming. But there's some that do that. I've got to show my strength, right? Blow out my back while I'm doing it. All right, so there's people that'll do that. And I understand. Like, you want to show, you want to feel that strength. But eventually, Ecclesiastes say that strength's going away. The strength of the youth, it's going to be gone one day. And I know some of you probably could testify to that, but I told, I, my, my feeling is this, is as long as I have strength, if God lets me use it to help you, I'm going to do it, all right? And that's only because he's given it to me. And one day he's going to take it away, one day it's going to be gone, and then it's gone. And hopefully I'll be okay with it then. And right now I'm just kind of saying I think I will be, but I know the reality of my own life, and I will not be in that moment. So for right now I'm claiming, God, help me to be ready for that when the time goes, all right? So he gives power to the weak, though, and strength strength to the powerless. Here's that crocheted verse. Even youths shall become, will become weak and tired. Young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord 
will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and they'll not faint. But notice what that comes at the end of. That comes at the end of trusting the Lord and finding comfort in His Word. That's, that's not a verse just to be taken out of context that I'm going to claim this verse on my life and I'm going to find strength as I push forward and I run forward and I charge the battle and God's going to give me strength in these wings. That's not the verse to be claimed after I've done everything in my power and completely exhausted myself and it's like, God, you're going to rise me from the ashes and I'll find Neil's new strength. No, that's if you're finding it at that moment, then the strength is your God. The youth is your God. The soaring on the wings of eagles is your God. That's not what that verse was talking about at all. The word of the Lord. The Lord should be your God. He said at the beginning, comfort, comfort my people. If you are not one of his people, then he's not your God. And if he's not your God, you can't possibly be strengthened by him. And you can't possibly look at the world and what's going on around you and find any sort of comfort. And remember, the comfort isn't sitting down on the couch eating bonbons, okay? That's not the comfort. Now, that might be where you're at in life, and okay, but that's not the comfort he's talking about. The comfort is he's wiping away the tear. You're dealing with the things that are going on in the world around you. You're living in them, and you know that no matter what comes against you, God is going to comfort you. MJ, that's why when you shared that prayer request, I immediately wanted to say, God wipes away the tear. He doesn't take away the circumstance. He doesn't take away the memory. He doesn't take away that, but he's going to wipe away the tear, and that's the comfort, and it's whether or not you're going to hold on to that promise of God that he's going to wipe away the tear. And so the only way that I believe that he does that is if you're in his word, because otherwise you're not going to see the stories. That's why they're there. All the things that God did in the past, that's why they're there. When we share prayer and praises in the morning on Sundays, that's why they're there. Because you can find comfort. You can say, oh man, that's what I needed this morning. When we read the Word, that's where you find it. Whenever you hear it here, that's where you find it. But then like Charles Spurgeon said, when you walk out there, that's where other people are going to find it. They're going to see your face. They're going to see the way you live. They're going to see the way you act in the circumstance when someone wrongs you. And they're going to say, how do you have peace? How do you have joy? How do you have comfort? Well, I'm a child of God. And if you are not a child of God, you're not going to find comfort. I'll just tell you, it's going to be manufactured by a little God. It's going to be manufactured by a golden God. It's going to be manufactured by a wooden God. But at the end of the day, that God's going to fall and you're going to try to pick it back up. If you have to pick back up God, then that's not a God. If you have to carry God, that's not a God. Either you're going to stand on the rock or you're not. You shouldn't have to carry the rock. Either you're going to jump in God's backpack or you're not. God's going to carry you if he's your God. And he's going to carry you exactly where he wants you to go, exactly when he wants you to be there. You can't tell him to turn left or right because you can't advise him. You can't tell him to speed up or slow down because that's not your job either. You can't tell him to give you more strength or to bring a ton of people along to come and help you because that's not your job. He's not the one that you can advise, but he's going to do exactly what he wants to do, and it's whether or not you're listening to him. So if you want to hear from God right now this week, go read the Word of God and apply it to your life. Now, that's all I got to say about that because there's not much more to say, right? So um, I will say this, final, the Word of God is true, it's perfect, there's literally, I mean, I, I, just reading it every, I try to read it every year, but I've got kids, so I have realistic expectations too, right? So I try to read it, I try to buckle down and read as much as I can and just get what I can out of it. And my suggestion is that you should try that, okay? Genesis, just go through. For some people, they're like, nah, I can't do that. Well, you can't do that because you've not tried, but just try it. Get as far as you can every day as you can. If it takes you 50 years, great. But for right now, go home and read Ruth 1 through 4. And see how God brought comfort to her. But again, he's going to redeem you. If he hasn't already, here's how he redeems you. This blood of his son, Jesus. When he looks at me, he sees, the, he sees this, like this red shirt. Okay, you see this red shirt? You can't unsee this red shirt at the moment because I told you to see this red shirt. That's what Jesus says uh, for anybody that has come to him and said, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. If you trust, if you believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God, which the Bible preaches that he is. Jesus said, I literally am God. I'm the Son of God, okay, in human flesh. Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless life on earth. But then, just like this folded piece of paper, the sin that I've got, the wrong that I do, and that could be anything as simple as I told a white lie, now you're a sinner, to I didn't tell a white lie, and you're still a sinner because you have lied before, right? So we've lied. If that in itself, just one lie, that makes you imperfect. And God's perfection has to be paid for. You can either choose to pay for it once over, or you can have the Lord Jesus Christ cover you and pay for it twice over. So when the Lord looks at me, he sees this red shirt, which is, let's just say, he sees Jesus. And Jesus walks me before the Father and he says, hey, God, remember, you're looking at me. You're looking at me. You're looking at me. Don't look at JJ. Because if you look at JJ, you're going to see all the sin. You're looking at me. You're looking at my blood. You're looking at what I've done. And he walks me through. And whenever I come to the gates of heaven, it's not going to be Peter that greets me. It's going to be Jesus walking me through saying, look at me. Look at me. Don't cast, Jesus, don't cast JJ back because you're looking at me. You're looking at the blood. The blood's covering him. And then I'll be able to approach the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus. And there's a lot of hope that can be found just in that. Read Revelation. There's a lot of hope coming up. That's the last big thing to hope for, by the way, is eternity. And if you've not got eternity to hope for, if you're living just for today and you're not living for a future, dude, comfort, comfort, comfort. Find it in the Word of God. And if you can't find it in the Word of God, you might not be a child of God. And that's what I'd encourage you to maybe look at as we go to the Lord in prayer. So if you all bow with me, and we'll, uh, we'll come before the Father. Father, thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace, God, of all the places uh, that we could be and of all the scripture that you've decided to have us look at today. God, I'm so thankful for, I'm thankful for John the Baptist, and I'm thankful for the fact that he prepared your way. And Father, you've come, and we're going to continue to look at Luke, and we're going to see some of the magnificent things that, yes, you've done, but God, looking at your word, you've done so much for us. And God, I just ask that if there's someone here, or maybe there's a lot of us here, I know that I'm one that's here. God, if there's someone else here that needs to find comfort in your word, I just ask that they have the opportunity to read your word even today as they leave this place and find more comfort in it. Father, if there's someone that's here that's never given their life to you and they need to find comfort in you for the first time in eternity, God, I ask that they just come before you right now and give everything that they know about you to everything they know about themselves. And God, that they just surrender to you right now. And God, if there's someone that's here that is maybe knows everything that they do know about you and, and they've already surrendered to you but have begun to kind of walk down a path, maybe not a full 180, they've been trying to kind of break off that angle just a bit. God, I ask that they redirect their path to you today and they find comfort in your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.